Journalism in the United States is imagined as a public good, an institution that aids in the maintenance of democracy as it holds people in power accountable for their actions. Journalists are also tasked with helping citizens understand how their communities are run. However, that's becoming increasingly difficult as local newsrooms around the country shrink or are shuttered completely. Journalism and news deserts are the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics in Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former Chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Tom Stites. Stites is a writer, editor, and entrepreneur, and is currently a consulting editor for the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. He's also the founder and president of the Banyan Project, which aims to strengthen democracy by pioneering a sustainable and replicable model for web journalism. As an editor, he has supervised reporting that has won an array of major journalism awards, including two Pulitzer Prizes. And last month, Story Sites Wrote About News Deserts was published on the Pointer Institute's website. Tom, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Could you explain uh, to our listeners what a news desert is? My definition is pretty simple, and it is a community where there is no original reporting being done. It's as simple as that, that people can't find out what's going on in their community. There's another concept, too, that you might shed some light on, ghost newspapers, which is a term. I think Margaret Sullivan of The Post has a book out this week on, on that term. Talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, the term was actually originated by Penelope Muse Abernathy at the University of North Carolina, uh, whose work I have used a lot as a journalist. And this is the idea that you've still got a newspaper and it's got a nameplate and it looks, there's paper and there's print and there's ink and all the things, but the content has no civic value. You know, there are no reporters or so little reporting that there's not enough information moving into the community to be able to, uh, to, to, to have an informed citizenry in the community. Let's talk a little bit more about the, the, the numbers here too, Tom. So we know that we've lost about 2,100 daily and weekly papers over the last 15 years. We know that uh, I think Peggy or Penny Abernathy's recent research shows we're losing about 30 newspapers a month during the COVID crisis. It's actually accelerated. And talk a little bit more about the implications of that. Well, it, it, I find it terrifying because I actually uh, share Winston Churchill's deep belief in democracy, which is that it's the worst form of government ever devised except for all the others. And I mean, I, I really think that's accurate, but it's the best we can do. It's certainly better than autocracy or theocracy or the various options that there are some people in this country would much rather have than democracy. But as I think it is fair to say, I mean, journalism is, is one component of a successful democracy, but I think it is something we can safely say that without an informed electorate, you cannot have a democracy that actually works. And if you have a whole bunch of communities that have no news coverage, 
is presented either on paper or online or any other way and nobody knows what's going on, you do not have an informed community. And that those 2,100 newspapers represent about 25%, just short of 25% of all the papers that were uh, being published in, uh, in 2004. So it's a 15 year span. This is a non-trivial number. And the, I believe now that the coronavirus has arrived that the, the disappearance of local news uh, organizations will accelerate probably pretty significantly over the next year. There are in Penny's most recent report, there are two or three people quoted that say there could be hundreds of newspapers die in the rest of, you know, that are with us now that will be gone by the end of this year. Let's hope that's wrong. Uh, so I'm curious about when you're talking about the, the value of local news, and as someone who still subscribes to a local newspaper, I mean, I, 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 as do I. Yeah, I, I enjoy getting this. It's something that's 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 wired in. But but we also live in a world where we can customize the input that we that we consume. Uh, you know that that we can easily live in an echo chamber of beliefs that are very similar to our own and how we consume news. Does does the local the presence of this local news help to combat that kind of self-selection of, 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 of input? Well, yeah, for one thing, it becomes something you can select. There are an awful lot of communities now and more coming where there is no local reporting to select for your, for, for your, for your little collection. So one of the things, following up on John's question, one of the things that a Brookings Institute, Institution study showed last year was with this absence of local news, particularly in smaller communities and small towns, uh, the default news has become evening cable TV news. And they're arguing that in a lot of these news deserts, the only news people really are watching are national news stories. And yes. they tend to be heavily partisan mm -hmm. if you're watching cable news in the evening. Talk a little bit about that. Well, it's uh, a phenomenon that I think people are beginning in a formal way to discover, but I think it's been true for a very long time. I believe that the news deserts of, of America started with the failure of, of rural newspapers. Yeah. It, it, rural America is essentially a news desert. I mean, they're, they're little oases here and there, but not many. And it's been that way for quite a long time. So, you know, if, if your civic life is not expressed in, in, in a way that people can understand it and discuss it with, their other, with other citizens and make citizenship decisions that you're called on to do it with some information in your pocket, uh, you're then left with, with the much more abstract news that you get from national sources. Mm. Uh, it, it, you, you start talking about issues and you start talking about issues that have no particular, in many cases, expression in the local community. But that some, suddenly begins to be where your mind goes. And then you start applying all of this issue think to the community you live in. And it doesn't necessarily fit, but it's all you got to work with. And I, I just think it's... Uh, as bad as it is that the newspapers have failed, I think that this amplifies the badness of it because it's distracting from the community and it's just and, 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 and it confuses the thought patterns that you need to be an effective citizen uh, mm -hmm. at, at, in your community. I remember we had George Packer here, the New Yorker writer. Yes. Uh, a couple of years ago, and he told this story that really clicked with me 
uh, it was an editor in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and Packer asked him, I think, you know, what are your letters to the editor like these days? And he said, well, they're frankly not very much about local issues anymore. They're cable news talking points. Yep. And, uh, and I've heard other stories since then from small town editors in Ohio who are saying the same thing, that people want to discuss national stories because they have no, there's no factual foundation from reporting that's going on in their local communities. And there's, there's another terrible uh, aspect of this, and that is the fact is where there is no real information, you, you're ripe for serious disinformation. And there are, there's something called the Kentucky Post. I mentioned in a story maybe a year ago, it's close to close by where you are. Uh, and uh, now uh, many, many places that are published not for profit, but for propaganda purposes. Uh, and they seem like, they look like local newspapers. When you look at their websites, they have a nameplate that makes them look like a newspaper. They're written, the, the stories are written in the style of journalism, so you think it must be journalism, and it's not. It's pure propaganda. So what you do, as the newspapers die, and no, and if no digital news sites come into play in that community to keep, keep its journalism going, people are under assault from propagandists. And then there's the social media mess. Uh, one of the things I noticed, there was... Um, after the first wave of, of demonstrations that sadly gave way to violence uh, in, in the evenings, the, the right-wing uh, talking points had a lot to do with Antifa, this anti-fascist group. There was a bunch of stuff that went out on, on um, social media that said, you know, that George Soros funds these people and they are coming to your community. In, and there were places, small towns scattered around the, the middle of the country uh, that had people up in arms, terrified because it, it buses full of uh, Soros-funded Antifa uh, violent people are coming to our town. To, and they believed it. You know, if have, had there been a local newspaper, had there been a local news website that did reliable reporting, they would have been debunked immediately. They wouldn't even probably have bothered to do the, the, that, that uh, uh, social media propaganda. If, if they knew there was a newspaper there, why would they even bother? You know, there's a defense mechanism that's built in to local journalism that's done in a sound way. Uh, it, it holds out the, the invaders, if you will. So, so in some of the, the reporting that you've done on this, you've, you show a number of maps that, that are highlighting where these deserts are occurring. And in, yes. in your previous comment, you had noted about rural America as being pretty much where you see a lot of, a lot of these deserts. You know, we also have seen with some even major city publications oh, yeah. decreasing their frequency of publications, even if they continue to exist. Yes. Are there are there other places or where you have these types of this area of concern of under coverage with defaulting to kind of general national talking points? Well, yes, I think that that, you know, we, we have the conversation that's going on now, thanks to Penny's Abernathy's amazing research. Uh, is focused on everything since 2004. The fact is, there have been news deserts in this country for a very long time that predate that. And the 
the, the way I, I actually am the first person who used the term news desert in my writing. That was the first time it was ever published. People asked me if I coined it, and I think that's a grandiose thing to claim. I'm sure it's been around and people have talked about it, but it, it started a conversation. So, and what got me started on that was a, uh, uh, I was on a panel at a convention and there was a reporter there from Chicago who had some statistics uh, that had to do with how people all in the different neighborhoods of Chicago responded to a, a certain set of questions. And the ones, do you read the downtown newspapers? Uh, if you got, once you get into the South side and the West side, that fell off, but maybe not even as far as we might get, guess. But then the question is, is the information you get from the Chicago Tribune useful to you mm. in, in terms of your, 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 your life decisions and your citizenship decisions? The answer was no. So that's a news desert in terms of civic engagement, civic information that allows you, that, that lifts you up as a citizen to, to have a voice. I think that that's been the case for a very, very, very long time. Now, Chicago is actually a little better off than most places because the Defender, at least in 2004, was still a daily newspaper. It's not anymore, doesn't print. So I think that, that, that uh, people who are poor uh, have a very different set of life concerns than people who are affluent. You know, your financial page... Uh, for poor people is how to stay out of the grips of the payday lenders. It's not how best to in, uh, invest my, my uh, 401k. It's a different world. And the newspapers tend to uh, uh, write for the middle class and up, and they tend to ignore the poor. And if, you, if I were a poor person and I needed financial guidance I wouldn't get it from my newspaper. So it, when you get down to it, I think that the news deserts of America are demographic as much as they are geographic and that they are, uh, it, it, there's a class problem, there's a race problem that's involved in this and it is structural. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with writer and editor Tom Stites about the shrinking landscape of local journalism. You mentioned, Tom, that news deserts are not new, necessarily. Um, What is it of the last several decades that has sort of made um, this become such a pressing concern? Because it is a pressing concern for journalists, for academics, uh, for people who are engaged with political discourse. Like it's a, a constant sort of drumbeat is this idea of a news desert. Why is there this focus now if this has been a problem for a while? Well, it has been, the problem is now that the, the news deserts are spreading like mad. I think if you were a poor person or lived in a, a big urban black community, uh, you've sort of grown up in, in news deserts. It's nothing new. But now news deserts are spreading like wildfire. And, uh, and th- there's no fire department on the way. So th- that's pretty different, and it's uh, terrifying. So, so, I mean, that, that really begs the question of uh, what, where, where do we find signs of hope? What, what are some of the ways that, wh- how do we, how do we, you know, fight this wildfire that you've described? How do we, how do we engage the local, you know, local communities in demanding this type of information to have them, how do you change that expectation and then provide that service? Boy, that's the ultimate question at this point. And the, uh, 
the answer, the glib answer in my case would be start a news co-op using the Banyan Project's <laughs> business model. I, I thought that might be part of your response. Well, I, I need to say, but it, I actually believe it is true. Yes. I would not yeah. be putting my energy into that in, at this stage of my life. Sure. Uh, I earned this white beard, you know. The, uh, but there are startlingly little interest in that. And there are people who have been sort of uh, saving string on ideas for what you might do other than me. Uh, and most of the attention uh, it goes to the idea that the government ought to fund journalism the way that it does in Europe for the BBC and for any number. There's some very interesting statistics. I believe that the United States, in the United States, the government spends 85 cents per year per person to support journalism. I'm not making this number up. I'm also not quite 100% sure of it, but I'm about 99% sure. So I got to qualify that. But in Europe, the, the numbers are may, big multiples of that. They're not all the same and there's some pretty big disparities, but it's something that Europe has done for a long time and it's built into the, into the dem democracy systems. Don't we, don't we face a lot of pushback from the journalists here who make this argument that, well, how can you, if you're getting money from the government, how can you cover it? Yeah. Even though we have NPR as a model? No, I'm with you. I, have, I, I think that there are people who have put quite a bit of work into thinking about this very topic. And as a matter of fact, I opened a link last night. And I was too, didn't have enough bandwidth to read it carefully. I still haven't read it, but as somebody who has models have developed models that would keep the government from meddling in the journalism, even though they fund it. I find it very difficult to, to, to imagine this. I, I, in this particular country, at this particular divided time, where there are people who, who are just desperate to control the, the conversation so that it, it reflects their biases, uh, I just don't think we're going to get there. We got to do something else first. Maybe that'll come. Can you can you talk a little bit about Banyan too? And uh, I mean, sure. we know we have uh, we have a business model that's dysfunctional in journalism. We've got Google and Facebook making almost seventy percent of all digital advertising revenue going to two places. These are middle guys. They don't produce the news, but they're making the money. And I know they're have, trying to help fund Report for America and other places. But uh, the idea of a co-op, getting the community involved, is something that I think is really interesting. And you've been doing this for a while, right? I, I've been trying to do it for a mm -hmm. while. I still do not have adequate funding. So if uh, funders, if you're listening, please pay attention. The... Well, let me let me veer just a little bit off uh, because I'm going to start talking about credit unions. There are a whole lot of different kinds of cooperatives. Uh, Cabot Cheese is a cooperative of dairy farmers, and they pool their stuff and they have centralized production stuff. They make more money and ha have a better place in the market because they're a cooperative. A lot of agricultural cooperatives. There's something. There's a category of of cooperative called a consumer cooperative. And these are cooperatives that are owned by their end users. Think food uh, co-ops. If you have taste for a certain kind of food that's hard to get in your supermarket, you find that you start a co-op and you get a bunch of people together who want the same kind of food. You get the yeah, And the, the point is not to make money as a grocer, but to get the food you want at the best price you can. Credit unions, uh, the, in, it, 
are, are consumer co-ops. They're owned by their end users. Well, it's really complicated because they're in a special category that's nonprofit, and I don't understand it. But nonetheless, it's it, it, the, the, the depositors are, are what run things. That's where the authority resides, is with, with, the, uh, with the depositors. In 1929, when the Great Depression got started with the crash, there were 1,100 credit unions in the United States. Uh, coming out of the Depression, there were 11,000. The way this happened is all kinds of banks went out of business and failed. And there was no source of credit in communities except loan sharks. I did a bunch of reporting about the or, sort of the, the origin stories of, of credit unions uh, in learning about how to do a, a news co-op. Astonishing number of them were brought into being for, for fear of your kneecaps being cracked if you got your, your credit in the wrong place. I'm serious. Hundreds and hundreds of them. So credit is something people need, and they didn't, the market failed, literally, in, 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 and in the sense of economics. So they, the people figured it out and did it themselves. We now, the credit deserts are sure gone, <laughs> and, but we have news deserts now. And not everybody has the level of civic interest or, or energy to be part of anything that goes on in our community. Too, too many people don't vote. They don't think. They don't know what's going on. They don't care. It's true. And it will probably always be true. But there are people in every community who care. And they care enough that there are people wringing their hands. And what are we going to do? Well, start your own. Uh, it, the way that it, the idea is to have hundreds in a small community or thousands in a large community of local people, ideally very well distributed through the community, who own are, are members of the of the news co-op, whose mission it is to serve the needs of the community for news and information. Uh, it's a community institution. It is not a for-profit business. And you get, if you're a member, you get uh, the intangible as well as tangible benefits. You get a little piece of stock. You have a vote uh, in terms of who's going to be the directors, and then that determines who hires the editor and so forth. So you have a voice. You have a, you have a civic voice. And not, you know, I, we don't know yet the incidence of people who care that much to do this, but we have on a test found a whole bunch of people who leap to be founding members of such an entity. So just, so, oh, sorry. That, so, so the idea is, is to create an, a grassroots community institution that fulfills the, the information needs. I, yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting idea. And I, th I think one aspect of, I, I'm gonna change gears in one second, but just one quick observation. Sure. Uh, there was an aspect of a need that was being unmet, but there was mm -hmm. also an issue of trust Mm -hmm. of what of who is able to provide that need provide for that and i think that that's that's kind of it's it's a matter of getting people to the point of embracing both the need and the trust component to move forward what's interesting about that john like, is that uh you know in these national polls about who do you, you know do you trust your right the national polls are 50 percent local is 70 percent. so there's a lot yeah. of trust in local journalism but, and if I may just blurt a little more, please. there is no more trustworthy form of business ownership than cooperatives. 
And the reason for that, if you think about the, the basic publishing model that is now dying, uh, it's deceptive. We tell the reader, this is for you, but what the, you get 80% of your revenue by selling your reader's attention to advertisers. It's not, the yeah. readers are, are a, a, a commodity you sell. You have to, have to serve them to get their attention to sell it, but it's, that's the primary uh, revenue comes from the advertisers. And if you think about gatekeepers, editors are gatekeepers. Every gatekeeper is accountable to whoever signs the paycheck. Uh, in a regular newspaper, the, the publisher signs a paycheck. The publisher is af affected by the local advertisers. And the publisher is accountable usually to some distant set of co executives, corporate executives, who are then accountable to f even more distant investors. In a cooperative, you're accountable to your readers because your readers are the owners, not all of them. It's there for everybody to read. But the members are your most engaged readers, and they are the people who vote for the board of directors who hires you as an editor. And if you're an editor, you better pay attention to your readers in a way that it is like not anything we've known much. It also gives you the opportunity to make editorial decisions from the readers up more than from the institutions down, which is essentially default mode in every newspaper now. So there's a huge trust component. Amen. So I, I, I got to ask at least one question that has a stat flavor to it. So I'm going to ask you as, a, as someone who thinks about the news and who's reported on the news, what are some of the, what kind of statistical literacy is required for journalists and editors? And then as a follow-up, how can that be, what, what should the public have as, should have as expectations for the, the, the quality of the statistically related and presented material? Well, uh, I'm sad to say that the, what is required of newsrooms in terms of statistical sophistication is almost never present. There may be one or two people in a newsroom who really have a sense of statistics. I was one. I am one, actually. Uh, and, and once actually studied statistics, you might be amazed to know. But it's very uncommon. Uh, and that is a sad thing. I think that the, that the readers have every reason to believe that the newspaper is going to deliver considered and accurate statistics. But it is so rare, particularly in things like medical research, mm -hmm. where people, you know, people go away from reading the story thinking that cancer has been cured. And it's really a, a tiny study of 18 people that nobody, you know, and, and it's, it just doesn't should never print the story. You know, it's not worthy of being printed. Um, so, yeah, no, it's a I think it's a terrible po problem. What's his name? John Allen Palos wrote a book called. A mathematician uh, reads the newspaper. Reads the newspaper, which I got a copy is right behind me on what, that shelf, <laughs> uh, as is his, his numeracy book as well. And we have to be able to deal with statistics with the full understanding that our uh, the core of the newspaper's readership is innumerate, significantly innumerate. So you've got to be very, very careful. Uh, I will, if, if it's okay, I will blurt further and, and give you an example in this article that I wrote for Pointer about the news desert. Mm -hmm. Very quickly, within two weeks after the pandemic uh, descended, a publisher of suburban weekly newspapers in Chicago, including the most uh, among the most affluent suburbs anywhere, 
pulled the plug on his business. He had 14 newspapers, gone. Out of it. He says there's no, he just couldn't sell an ad and he couldn't collect on any of the ads he'd sold. He just, he said, just, I don't see a way to keep publishing. Wow. Well, if you can't publish in, in, uh, in communities like that, where can you? I put this in my story. You can just assert that these are affluent places. But I, what I did was I, I made a list of them. I went into the web. I got the median household income for all 14 of these communities. Uh, I got the uh, median household income for Illinois. I got the e median household income for the United States. are about that far apart. Mm. Didn't matter much. And uh, I uh, and I worked the median household income for the communities that were served by those 14 newspapers. Uh, and it was you know, higher uh, by like double the um, that of of the, the United States. And then, but the thing is having them all, the, the highest one was $216,000 and change in Wilmette, Illinois. Wow. I mean, I used that number in the story. I think I used two or three numbers out of all that work uh, to say that here's what the median income is for the United States. This is double that. And, and I didn't use a number. I just said double that people, anybody can do that. And here is the number of, of the most expensive place. And anybody can say, well, I, you know, I make $70,000 a year. He said, median? What's a median? I don't know, but that's a lot of money up there, too. So that, that, the, that the reader could take away from that, we're talking really, really rich place here, mm -hmm. not just affluent suburbs. And I think that, it's, that doing that, that took me a half an hour. Uh, and I wrote one sentence. Uh, I think things like that are at the core of making reporting re reliably informative to readers when you use numbers. Well, Tom, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Oh, well, <laughs> I hope that we, we did get to statistics. We did. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, guys. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Yes.